In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for bringing us together again this morning on the subject of Judaism, the history of the Jewish people from Moses to Christ. We ask your blessing on our efforts today to understand not only the situation that we will be discussing of the judges, but also the problems of the judges and what it eventually led to. So we ask you to open our minds and our hearts and to hear what you want us to hear out of all of this. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. As I said, we're going to be talking uh, about the judges, but I want to go through that kind of briefly. The judges, as you have pretty much imagined, I suppose, from reading uh, the book of Joshua and Judges, is sort of an interim period of time when very little happened, you might say, in the uh, history of the Jewish people between the time that they entered the promised land of Canaan. But from the time that the Jewish people returned to the promised land until the beginning of the monarchy, which was a period of almost about 500 years. We don't know exactly, of course, because of the problem of calendars. There were no calendars in those days. But nevertheless, uh, the rule of the Jewish people passed from a single man, that is, from beginning from Abraham down to uh, Moses, and then from Moses to Joshua, and from Joshua to the judges. So you can see the expansion now of leadership. The judges, of course, were not judges in the legal uh understanding of judges today, but they were more like just leaders, more in a military sense than anything else. Uh, And they were not over the entire uh, Jewish people at any one time. These were various people, and there were 12 uh, judges. Actually 13, but mostly 12 that ruled ruled over the the people at various times and in various territories. It wasn't until uh, the last of the judges, who was Samuel, came into prominence. And that's where we pick up the first book of Samuel. Does anybody have any questions or problems uh, concerning the judges? You all kind of get the understanding of who the judges were and what uh, their responsibility was. The two that really come to mind that had rather an interesting story was Gideon and, you know, the white fleece, uh, or the golden fleece, I guess it was, really. And then, of course, you had uh, the Samson, uh, Samson and Delilah story, which I think was very interesting, particularly if you saw the movie, or movies, there were more than one made of that story. <clears throat> it was kind of interesting, but Hollywood always sort of uh, embellishes it, you might say. Uh, but that's okay. Uh, they were interesting stories, and they had their place in Jewish history. But we come now to the end of the period of the Judges, And it will be almost the end of the second period. When I say second period, I'm talking about the way that this was developed. This little uh, summary here. We're coming close to the end of the second period now. uh, From Moses uh, to David. Uh, We'll be talking about David next week. uh, Because that's... 
to take up a whole class in itself, just discussed in David. But uh, Samuel has a very interesting story also. His mother was barren. Now, it's interesting that in Jewish history, there were four women in the Old Testament who were barren and finally were given uh, sons through some miraculous uh, part on, of God's part. And because it was part of God's plan of salvation that this should happen. Those four women, anybody know who the four women were? Sarah was one, okay. Uh, Rebecca, I, Isaac's wife, was barren. Uh, that didn't mean she couldn't have children, it just means that she didn't have children in, until she came into the part of the story. And then you had, yes, Hannah was another one, and then you had another one. Rachel. Rachel, one of Jacob's wives, couldn't have children. Finally, she did. She had Benjamin and Joseph. All right. Uh, but these were all uh, children who were given to their mother because of certain prayers, certain needs, but also certain very important points in God's plan of salvation. Remember, the names of children or children in themselves uh, were given by God because it signified a special role in God's plan of salvation. The same as changing of certain names of people uh, were also uh, a sign of a special role in God's plan of salvation for that person. All right, Even Jesus' name in itself was dictated by the Father through the angel. Uh, you got John the Baptist in the New Testament. You've had a change of uh, Simon to Peter and from Saul to St. Paul. So you had a number of changes. But all of those changes represented certain people who were designated for important roles in God's plan. Hannah, as, as we mentioned, was one of those who prayed for a child and eventually was given a child whom she called Samuel, not to be mixed up with Samson, but Samuel. And after he was weaned or old enough to be on his own, uh, he was given to Eli, the priest of the temple in Jerusalem, to uh, and was dedicated to the service of God. And he grew up under the watchful eye of Eli. Now it's strange in a way that Eli would raise Samuel in such a, a great way as to make him a, a, a very favored man in the eyes of God. And yet Eli's own sons uh, were not so well uh, trained or educated, you might say. And there's a rather important point made out of that. But Samuel becomes a very important and the last of the judges. He was also considered at times a prophet. Now I want to talk a little bit about the word prophets. Because when we start getting into the third uh, part of this history, the third part, we'll be talking about a lot of the prophets. The word prophet does not mean one who tells the future or fortune. The word prophet means one who speaks for God. And you have to keep that in mind when you read it because if it was somebody who spoke only uh, in a way of telling the future, a lot of what is said then wouldn't make sense. Because the pronouncements of the prophets, when we get to them, 
had to have some meaning for the people at the very time that he spoke. Otherwise, they would be of no value. Now, there were times when the prophets spoke of things to happen in the future, but the people understood that, that these events were to happen in the future. For example, the prophets that were very prominent uh, at the time of the Babylonian exile in the 6th century, they talked about the future of their return to Israel and the glory that was going to be given to them if they abided by the teachings of God. Well, they understood that. It was something to happen in the future, but it depended on their relationship with God. And so when it did happen, uh, they could look back and say, well, so-and-so, the prophet, told us this, and it has come to be. But unfortunately, not all of it came to be, because they didn't keep their side of the, of the bargain. Okay. But we're getting a little ahead of our story here. Uh, within the story of Samuel, you have intermingled with that the story of the Ark of the Covenant. And as you can see, the Ark of the Covenant was a very prominent uh, part of Jewish history, the most sacred object that they possessed. And it was sacred because it contained three separate items that were directly connected to God's providence of taking care of them. One was the Tablets of the Ten Commandments, which God gave directly to the people through Moses. Another one was the staff of Aaron that was used not only to uh, strike the water and cross the Red Sea or the Reed Sea or whatever it was, uh, so that the Israelites could uh, cross on dry land and escape from the Egyptians. And the third one was the jar of manna, which God provided as food uh, for the Jewish people during the long time that they had spent wandering in the desert. So it was those three items that were directly connected with God that was housed in the Ark of the Covenant. One of the things that always uh, sort of... Uh, made me wonder is because when all of the descriptions of the Ark of the Covenant is given, and I think we gave you a copy of that here just a few lessons ago. As you can see here, it is designed to look like that it was about four and a half feet long. Alright? Four and a half feet long. Well, if the staff was Aaron, of Aaron was in there, in any position, would it have to be a very small staff, would it not? Or maybe Aaron was a midget, you know? I don't know. Uh, but that has always puzzled me. And obviously, it wasn't one of those canes that fold up like they have today. But I guess that is incidental, and we have to let that one slide by because it's not really that important. But it's funny because that puzzled me for a long, long time, and I couldn't get over it. And finally, it was like God saying to me, get over it, because it's not going to change. When we think of a staff as being something that you would follow Well, you see... That's exactly where the whole idea of the bishop's staff came from. You know, the idea of the bishop's staff and the crook on top of it. Anybody know what that crook represents? The shepherd's crook, where the shepherd, the shepherd head. I was thinking that was the pearly music from heaven. Uh, 
the shepherd's crook is, is because the shepherd would use that to pull sheep out of holes or crevices or whenever a sheep would be stubborn enough not to move, uh, the shepherd would take it by the crook of the staff and pull it. Well, usually those staffs are at least six feet tall. Uh, so we know that there's something not quite right about this idea of being able to house this Aaron's staff within the Ark of the Covenant, but we'll let that one go by because I don't think anyone's going to um, uh, clear that one up. Okay, but it's interesting how the story of the Ark is was used sort of uh, as a pawn uh, between the Philistines and the the Jewish people, and eventually when it was captured. It created a lot of problems because everyone that touched it uh, experienced some kind of misfortune. And finally, they couldn't wait to get rid of it, so they stuck it on uh, the back of a couple of uh, steer, I guess it was, or cows, and um, made it go back to the, the Jewish people. Well, that's not the end of it. Because we will read that it becomes a an obsession, you might say, later on with uh, David. David wanted to build a magnificent temple to house the Ark of the Covenant. And he wanted to glorify it by embellishing it with all kinds of gold and so forth and so on. Which uh, he did in, in a way, uh, but it was not up to him to build the temple, and we'll get into that story uh, next week, or the following week, whatever. Okay. But I want to go on to the idea of Samuel. Samuel becomes a leader of the Jewish people, and all of the Jewish people, uh, which is not exactly the way the rest of the judges actually operated. Samuel became a leader of all of the people and a, a special example of leadership. Uh, one of the things that he did was one, once he was appointed as a leader of all of the people, he visited all of his uh, major cities within the year on, a, on an annual basis. And it's interesting because, as I said last week, the whole idea of the judges is very much like bishops today. And bishops today have a requirement that they must visit every one of their parishes within their diocese once a year. And it comes from the same requirement of Samuel, who began uh, that particular trait. And there's a number of other little things, and Towards the end of this class, once we get down to the last one or two classes, we'll go through a lot of the uh, little things that have been taken over into Christianity and becomes rather part of our, our routine. Towards the end of Samuel's reign, the people are tired of all of the infighting and the problems that existed in the expansion of the numbers of people and having only one person over them. Uh, and Sam, Samuel was not a military type person. And so the people began to want a king. The whole idea of wanting a king was against, really, God and against Samuel. And both God and Samuel were very upset with the idea of a king. Now, that to us on the surface might look like a normal progression. However, if you think about it, God was their direct king right from the time of Abraham. 
And so we're talking for a period of almost a thousand years where God provided for these people, took care of them, particularly in the wandering uh, within the desert. Uh, and yet, now they are told that uh, or they ask for a king or demand a king. And Samuel tries to get them to see the fact that God is their king. And God, because of the covenant, will take care of them. And they said, no, no, we understand all of that, but we want a king. We want to be like those nations that surround us. And it's interesting in a way that they they wanted to be like the other nations, and yet they made them an exclusive community where they themselves would not go out to the other nations and try to uh, be an example to them. Uh, so we have a real mix-up of ideas and ideology there. Uh, they demand the king. And God pray, uh, Samuel prays to God. And, uh, God says, grant them their request. But at the same time, get them to understand that the demands of a human king will be far greater than they realize. And so Samuel sort of enumerates all of the things that the uh, king will do, uh, taking possession of their uh, children and their slaves and their produce from their farms and their cattle, etc., etc., in order to feed and so forth. Uh, and they said, far be it from us to uh, go against God, but we still want a king. Uh, now, if you jump all the way to the time of Christ, when the people uh, want to crucify Jesus, and Pilate says to them, do you want to crucify your king, the king of the Jews? And they yell out, we have no king but Caesar. Which is a real slap, you know, at God himself as well as at Jesus. We have no king but Caesar. And yet, they haven't realized that God really is their king and has been, or wants to be. And he wants to be our king just as well. Do we make him our king? Or do we put others, other things first? Or before him? That's something that each one of us has to answer to ourselves and to God. Um, but it's an important thing. A lot of people have just never thought about putting God as their king. And yet we should do that. So, Saul, or rather Samuel, uh, then agrees to look for a, a king. And God directs him to choosing Saul. I won't go through all the the details there, because I hope that you've read all of that. But it's important that why did God choose Saul, who didn't start out okay and ruled for a number of years, the word the number 40 is in there again, we're not certain. Uh, why did he choose somebody that was less than satisfactory? Uh, rather than uh, choosing David first. Anyone have an, uh, an idea? Well, David wasn't even born when Saul was, was chosen. But he could have chosen somebody like David, you see. But again, what he was trying to do is to get the people to see 
that a human individual representing God uh, on earth, as the king does, uh, was imperfect and had a lot of faults. And if they had chosen somebody who did everything right, they'd say, see, we were right. God was wrong, we were right. But God didn't want them to see that because that was not correct. And so Saul started out okay, but ended up with a lot of misfortune, a lot of jealousy over this guy, this young fellow that finally was able to uh, slay Goliath, the Philistine, and to be an important part of his entourage. It's not quite clear how David is anointed by Saul later and comes into David is anointed by Samuel, excuse me, and comes into uh, Saul's camp and becomes an important figure, but it's not quite clear on that. In fact, there's a lot of things in uh, these three books, that is, uh, Joshua, Judges, and First Samuel, that are not clear. Uh, but we have to let it go at that. One of the things that I ran across, let me digress for just a moment. Uh, I think it was last week I gave you a book review out of um, Wall Street Journal. It was on this book here. And so I purchased it to read it myself. And I got, oh, maybe close to 100 pages. And it sort of verifies most of what I've been saying. But one of the things that it talks about in here that I had to kind of mark and I say, uh-huh, I told you. It says, um, we're talking now about uh, the, the Jewish wars. This is uh, talking about the war between the Jews and Rome in the first century A.D. But nevertheless, this is something that was just written this year. And it's talking about something that's further along than the time period we're discussing here. It says, this uprising would last for four years, actually three and a half years. The last four years of Jewish political independence that the world would see for the next two millennia. In the year 70 A.D., Roman forces led by Titus, the son of the emperor Vespasian, captured Jerusalem and burned the temple to the ground. Countless Jews died. According to the historian Josephus, the casualties numbered 1,100,000. Get this. Though, as with all ancient historians, his figures are not to be taken too literally. Remember, I've said over and over, you've got to be very careful about numbers in the Old Testament. Because the Jewish people love to exaggerate and embellish. And this fellow, the writer of this book, uh, agrees with that. Uh, it's an interesting book. It doesn't really tell me anything new, but it does confirm a lot of what I've been uh, preaching and teaching for uh, many years. You have a number of problems here in this whole idea of trying to figure out where David fits into uh, the rule of Saul. Uh, and even at one time, uh, Saul tries to kill David. And David realizes this, so David goes over to the enemy and starts working for the enemy, the Philistines. I, I never did quite understand that, uh, even though I tried to do some research and it just really isn't clear. And at the same time, uh, David becomes close friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. 
You have a little bit of uh, intrigue there because Jonathan feeds David information about what his father is trying to do. And so David is successful in avoiding any problems from Saul. Finally, of course, do you have a question? One other thing that I found puzzling right in this period is, is uh, David is a young guy, small, not real big, and he kills Goliath. And then almost in the next sentence, he's big and strong and, and he's a leader. Well, maybe he grew up. <laughs> <laughs> I know. As I've said, there's a lot of little puzzling things in this book that just don't seem to fit. And there's a lot of timing. For example, in uh, chapter 25, I believe it is, uh, Samuel dies, and yet he reappears in many ways in uh, succeeding Stories, yeah, as well as in a vision. Yeah. Don't you think there's a difference? It's not in the body, it's more in the mind. Uh, that could be. That could be. It's, uh, you know, they did believe in all kinds of divinations and uh, seances and that kind of thing in those days. So it's it's hard to understand. Um, but the writing is not done in a historical sense as we would think about it today in any chronological order. Uh, and that's the big unfortunate part. Remember, all of the early part of the Old Testament is not historical in the sense that we think of history. If we, if somebody today wrote a history of, say, the Civil War, the United States Civil War, uh, you would have all kinds of people checking virtually every word uh, to see if it was correct and in the right place. But that wasn't the case in ancient Jewish writings. Uh, as I said before, the scriptures did not were not written as scripture, holy scripture. They were written as histories. And they were written uh, seven, eight hundred years after the event uh, that they were talking about. Because there was, and because there was no way to go back and verify, people just had to accept what was there. And often did accept what was there, even though it may have been incorrect. And later on, when people would see that certain things were uh, incorrect, they would correct them. So then you would have two versions. And in one of the uh, sections here, you have two different versions of the same story or the same event. So you've got to be very careful when you're reading Old Testament uh, history. It is not history in the way we think about it. It is history of a religious point of view. Okay. It was revised and re-edited by the priestly group, which did not come into prominence until after the Babylonian exile. So we're talking about the latter part of the 6th century, early part of the 5th century. And that is when most of the Old Testament was brought together and all of these histories from the four different groups, particularly the book of Deuteronomy, was brought together and re-edited and put into the form that we have today. Uh, and we believe that was by the priest Ezra, but even there, we're not sure. And, of course, then... In the, sixth, in the second century BC, all of the Jewish histories, all of the Jewish scripture, 
even though it was now in the form that we have today, uh, was then translated from Hebrew or Aramaic into Greek. And changes were made at that time. So if you compare the Septuagint version, that is the Greek version of the Old Testament to the Hebrew version, you will find pretty much the same message, but the words are changed. So again, yes, we will all agree that the gospel or the Bible is the word of God, but not the words of God. So you've got to be very careful uh, on taking any phrase out of context and interpreting it in today's understanding of those same words. And yet, a lot of people do that. They will <coughs> take certain passages and swear by them, but they are interpreting them in today's usage of those same words. So please, uh, I've mentioned it several times, but it is worth repeating several times. Any questions so far? Well, I hope you're getting something out of this uh, rather mixed up uh, storyline, but unfortunately, what was that? Well, David had four wives <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> Kept him kind of busy. Uh, the thing is, yes, I have to agree, uh, David has his faults. Even Samuel had his faults. Uh, but Saul had more faults. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the writers, you know, can make anyone look like a saint uh, if they want to. And sort of uh, overlook some of the faults to make them look like saints. And that's, unfortunately, for us, what what happened. Yeah. It's, uh, yes? Well, he's pretty darn patient with all of us as well. We get a lot of mercy every yes. minute. Yes. Yes. The thing is, God's love sort of goes over a lot of those of those things. And also, God's love is what propels this whole plan of salvation. If it wasn't for his divine love, infinite love, there would be no need for a plan of salvation. But it was uh, the whole idea of God wanting mankind to return to him at the end of man's life and at the end of time, but under certain conditions. And those conditions are, have been set out uh, very clearly. And yet, look at how many people ignore them. And that's the thing that we're constantly battling today, is the good versus evil. Well, the, ch the question is, are children reading the Old Testament today? They are encouraged to read it, but I think it's more in the form of various stories, where the stories, you know, eliminate some of the uh, seamy side of the story, and only the good part is brought out. Uh, which is unfortunate, but for young people, that's why there are, are a couple so-called Bibles out there that uh, I sort of disagree with. Some, you know, somebody's asked me, well, somebody, several people have asked me, what's a good Bible? Well, they're all good because they're all supposed to be 
uh, the same thing. But there are two. One is called The Way, and the other one is called Good News for Modern Men. Uh, both of those are paraphrases. They were written primarily to get young people interested in the basics of Scripture. The intent was good, except that they leave out a lot of the seamy side, uh, the sinful side of mankind within the actual scriptures. Um, and that's all right to a point. But for somebody who is trying to really understand what God is telling us and teaching us, uh, those two particular uh, publications are not very helpful. And I would recommend that you not use them, not because they're not good, but because they are not uh, factual, they're not the proper uh, translations of Scripture. Well, we have more time than I thought we would, so let's go on. We'll talk a little bit more about um, David. I was going to wait until next week because uh, there is so much to talk about in King David. Um, I have to reorient my thinking here, but... uh, at a given point in time, uh, Saul sort of loses it uh, and becomes so jealous of David that he does a lot of rather foolish things. And God, through Samuel, who is still in existence at this time, by one way or the other, uh, tells Saul that he and his sons will all be killed on the same day as a sign of uh, God's displeasure with their service. And that is what happens. Well, as the story tells us, David was anointed to be the king even before Saul dies. Uh, which is kind of strange to me, but, you know, that's another one of those things you just sort of have to accept. But nevertheless, King David uh, is eventually uh, anointed as king. But remember, the kingdom at this time was spread all over and still under the jurisdiction of their tribal leaders. Well, that didn't always go well with some of those tribal leaders. But over a period of time, David gained their respect uh, and their cooperation. And eventually, David was anointed as king over all of the Israelite or Hebrew people, Jewish people. Remember, they weren't called Jews at this period of time. They weren't called Jews for another 500 years. So they were called either Israelites or the Hebrew people. Hebrew coming from their language. But David was eventually anointed as king over all of the Jewish people. So now we have come to a point where the authority, the leadership of the Jewish people has progressed from Abraham down to Moses, down through the judges, and now to David, who is king over all of the Jewish people. This sort of brings us into the third period of Jewish history. I always say that this third period is the most productive and at the same time the most destructive period of Jewish history. 
productive in many ways because it was during this period of time that these histories were encouraged to be written down. We don't know whether it was David or Solomon, but it was one of those two men, and probably Solomon, but we're not certain, so it's either one. But it was one of them that encouraged the Jewish people to begin writing down their histories for posterity. Posterity. We'll say posterior, but that isn't quite right. Uh, for posterity. Uh, and so we have the uh, Yahweh's people in the south and the Eloist people in the north, both writing their histories. But you have a number of things going on behind the scenes. David is accepted and looked upon as a great man, a great leader, uh, and a great friend of God, but he isn't always obeyed. And people in the north began to uh, move away from the teachings of Moses uh, and the instructions that God has given to them through Moses. And we'll see more of that next week uh, when we get into uh, some of the follow-on people after David and Solomon. Yes? Yes. So we consider David the first real king. How does that? I'm a little confused. Well, the first real king that was approved by God. See. But did God say God would make a king and give him Saul? But all these things are going to happen if you have a king instead of me. Yes. Okay. So God recognized Saul as the first king, did He not? Yes. <laughs> well, I told you there was a lot of confusing, confusing, confusing situations in this particular part of history. Uh, yes, God recognized and accepted Saul. He did not approve of Saul, but he accepted it as a way to get across to the people that a king would not solve all of their problems. An earthly king would not solve all of their problems. But eventually he, God, saw that this was inevitable. The whole idea of the monarchy. Now, the monarchy under Jewish, in Jewish history, lasted for a period of about 500 years, and then it disappeared for various reasons. It started with Saul and ended with the Babylonian captivity in the year 587 B.C. Now, there were a couple puppet kings and when you get down to the time of Christ, you're talking about Herods and there were seven Herods. Herod the Great, uh, who came to power in 63... B.C., and then his three sons, Philip, Archelaus, and forgot the other one's name, and then there were uh, a grandson and two grandsons and a great-grandson. Yeah. Uh, and they call that the Herodian dynasty. And it's a little incidental information, but in the book of Revelation, when they talk about the dragon with seven heads and ten horns, that is the, that is a disguised way of referring to the Herodian dynasty, the seven heads. Yeah. Okay. Seven heads, seven kings. Um, but getting back to David 
David was uh, very instrumental in a lot of things. For one, he established the center of Jerusalem. Uh, I should say he decided or made Jerusalem the center of Jewish uh, worship. And he had this fetish about wanting to build a permanent tabernacle or permanent temple for the Ark of the Covenant. And God finally said to him, enough of that. I want to build, I want you to build a palace, but it is up to one of your ancestors to build the temple. There's an important point that has to be made here. At one point in time when, uh, after David is elected as uh, king over all of Jerusalem, God makes a, a promise to him that he will be, um, let's see, I'm going to, I want to use the exact words if I can find it here. Chapter 7 of the second book of Samuel. It says, Now then, speak thus to my servant David. This is God saying to Samuel, right? The Lord of hosts has this to say. It was I who took you from the pasture and from the care of the flock to be commander of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you, and I will make you famous like the great ones of the earth. I will fix a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they may dwell in their place without further disturbance. Neither shall the wicked continue to afflict them as they did of old since the time I first appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also reveals to you that he will establish a house for you, meaning not a physical house, but a dynasty of descendants. And when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise you, I will raise up your heir after you, sprung from your loins, and I will make this, his kingdom firm. It is he, in other words, your descendants, who shall build a house for my name. In other words, God is telling David through Saul that it is Solomon, or his heir, that will build this house to house the Ark of the Covenant. God will build a palace for David. And I will make his royal throne firm forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And if he does wrong, I will correct him with the rod of men and with human chastisements but I will not withdraw my favor from him as I withdrew it from your predecessor Saul, whom I removed from my presence. Your house and your kingdom, in other words, your family or descendants, and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall stand firm forever. Nathan reported all of these words and this Entire vision to David. I'm sorry, that wasn't Saul, Solomon. It was Nathan, who was a priest of the temple. That became a very important point in Jewish history. If you go to uh, Psalm 89, I don't want to read all of this because it's rather long, but I would recommend that you read it uh, for next week. 
where Psalm 89 repeats exactly what I just wrote or read, uh, the promise that God makes to David. The promises of the Lord I will sing forever. Proclaim your loyalty through all ages. For you said, my love is established forever. My loyalty will stand as long as the heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will make your dynasty dynasty, uh, stand forever and establish your throne through all ages. Uh, If you go over to Psalm 132, it sort of repeats that. Again, it says, the covenant between David and God. Lord, remember David in all his anxious care, how he swore an oath to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. It says, I will not enter the house where I live, nor lie on the couch where I sleep. I will give my eyes no sleep, my eyelids no rest, till I find a home for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. In other words, he's referring again to his desire to build uh, a fitting temple for the Ark of the Covenant. And God repeats uh, his desire that that should be Solomon's uh, work, not David's. David's work is to unite the people. Now, this whole idea of God's promising David that his dynasty would last forever is something that the Jewish people have held up against God because they feel that God reneged on his promise. And yet it is the Jewish people who reneged on obeying God and the many things that God had asked of them. Uh, now, Christian theologians, Catholic theologians, say that even though the dynasty was broken at the time of the Babylonian captivity, never to be restored, it was restored in Jesus Christ, who then became the king of all the new chosen people of God. And Jesus is now the king of all mankind, the king of the Jews, as well as the king of all of the Christians. So there's this problem there that still exists among the the Jewish people, and that's why they didn't accept Christ. That's one of the reasons why they didn't accept Christ when he was living here on earth. It's because he did not fulfill their expectations and their interpretations of this promise of keeping this uh, commitment that God made to David. It's unfortunate, but uh, as I've said all along, they listened and they agreed to God, uh, but they did things their way, and they interpreted them their way. Yes? God is telling David that his lineage will go down, and we understand that Jesus is of the lineage of David. Yes, yes. David, back, we have Abraham, we have Moses, Saul, they're not of the lineage, the same lineage. So it actually just starts with David. No, it starts with Jacob. Jacob is the one that started the 12 tribes. Okay. Is David related to Jacob? In the line of Jacob? Uh, Yes. He's one of the 12 He's a descendant of one of the twelve sons of Jacob. Yeah. From the line of Judah. Yeah. And all the kings now, uh, excuse me, all the kings going down from David, Saul is his son, but are they all sons, grandsons, great-grandsons, and so forth? Uh, yes. Uh, one of the tribes, not necessarily of Saul. Saul never had children, to my knowledge. Yeah. yeah. 
Sorry. I mean, uh, Samuel. See, they, they, yeah, Samuel never had. Saul had a lot of children, and they were all killed. Yeah. This Second uh, Samuel seven, uh, it says, uh, "Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever." Uh, a lot of people interpret that uh, to mean that they're saved, uh, but at this time they didn't believe in going to heaven. Correct? At the time of so at the time of this writing, or the, or, or the time of David, no. But do you think did God? Well, no. When when the promise is made that his dynasty would live forever, it means that there would always be somebody on earth representing God and in the line of David. All right, but not up there in heaven. Right. So I've heard a lot of people interpret passages like this that that means. In your family stay. As long as the hierarchy or the patriarch is saved, everybody will be fine. No, there's a lot more to it than that. Right. That's what I, yeah. But I mean, they come to they, they refer to the like this. We, we, salvation depends on our activities, not where we came from or who we are. Yeah. But even still, at this time, that wouldn't even be accurate because they didn't believe that anyway. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I see you got a question. <laughs> yeah. But that fell apart. Uh, at the time of the Babylonian captivity. During the time of Samuel, Samuel and Saul and David, this was so. Yes, okay. yes it was. So after Babylon, that's when it was Babylon. Yeah. yeah, it fell apart at the Babylonian captivity. Yeah. Remember, that's where genealogy started also. People began to keep records of their tribes. And who belonged to what tribe? That was very important to the Jewish people, and still is, but not trying to trace it back to one of the tribes of Jacob. That's going too far. But genealogy really started with the Jewish people. Yeah. It was very hard. What's that? Not the Mormons. <laughs> oh, not the Mormons, no. 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 Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Well, I'd rather stop, like to stop here in a way, if you don't mind, uh, because getting deeper into the study of David requires your uh, reading some of the background. So for next week, I would like you to read the second book of Samuel all the way through. And you might start reading into the first book of Kings. You don't have to go very far because that would be the subject of the following meeting. The first book of Kings begins uh, Solomon's reign, which is very important also. But please read through the second book of Samuel, which is not very long, but it's rather interesting. Also, review... Psalm 89 and 132. Just want, to, just want to clarify, so David had four wives, and Solomon had seven husbands. <laughs> <laughs> well, once you get, you know, past ten, what difference does it make? <laughs> there again, you got to be you got to be very suspect about numbers in Old Testament history. Okay? Uh, I, I would say that seven would be uh, enough. What's that? 
Uh, yes, yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. Psalm 89. 89. Yeah, Psalm 89. All right. Any other questions before we leave? All right. You're getting off early today, but you might have to make up for it next week. All right. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We ask your blessing on our efforts. Help us to really understand the importance of these major people here and their contribution to Jewish history. Help us then also to see many of the things that originated within the Jewish histories that we have absorbed into Christianity. So we thank you for this time together and we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.